at Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason meet during Easter week. And I'm Doug Keck, your gatekeeper here. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Check out all Father Spitzer's websites. There's the magiscenter.com, of course, purposefuluniverse.com for those who are questioning, and spitzercenter.org. Of course, that's a new one. Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and our EW10 on-demand page. Recently, we added to our on-demand page, and it's not a, just a page, it's basically a service, an on-demand service. We've got St. John Apostle and Evangelist. This EW10 original docudrama examines the life and spirituality, of course, the apostle whom Jesus loved so much, and you'll want to check it out for free and on-demand, okay? And our topic today is the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. We were focusing on a couple of chapters having to do with the Eucharist uh, in honor of this year and the Book of the Month for EW10 for Eternity, Restoring the Priesthood and Our Spiritual Fatherhood by Cardinal Robert Seurat. Uh, and he always is interesting in what he has to say. Speaking of people who are always interesting, we have our own Father Spitzer. We're journeying him out on the West Coast. Great to see you, Father Spitzer. And if you could kick us off with a prayer, that'd be great. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all the blessings you give us, especially this, the blessing of this Easter season, the blessing of the resurrection that you share with us so abundantly in light and love and joy. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience and staff this day, so that everything we do will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. I hope you had a, a good Easter, Father. I had a wonderful Easter. Thank you. Were you in town, or uh, what did you do? No, I went up and saw my sister in okay. Portland, Oregon, and uh, my nieces and nephew and uh, some family friends. It was uh, a lot of fun, of course. and. Uh, and um, I, uh, I came back very well rested and uh, ready for, right. uh, as they say, more work <laughs> That's for right. the you Lord, which is, of course, uh, my joy. <laughs> yeah, you sound good because a couple of weeks ago, yeah, you were a little under the weather, so it's good to hear you sounding uh, yeah. like, like your old self. Uh, so let's get into some <laughs> articles that uh, have showed sure. up. Uh, not to bring us down, churches gather diminished flocks for fourth Easter since COVID. Um, a story that uh, was published mm -hmm. uh, and EW10 carried it. It's uh, three years ago at the height of the pandemic. This is uh, France, Francis S. Rocco wrote this. Uh, Christians across the U.S. and the world celebrated Eastern ways that many found surreal watching it on TV, online, clergy officiated inside empty churches, impoverished, improvised alternatives to such as drive-in services going back three years ago. Goes on to say, yet many congregations uh -huh. are reduced in size from pre-pandemic levels. A significant minority of members who continue to follow service virtually from home, and we've talked about this before. And it goes on to say, 22% of Christians say they now watch online or televised services more than they did before the pandemic. Okay, it's about 22%. Yeah. And it goes on to say, yeah. 
Uh, one bishop uh, noted that uh, Bishop Zubik from Pittsburgh kind of Riley uh -huh. said, I could stay in my pajamas and have the Cheerios and listen to Father's homilies and comment on it uh, and describing people watching online masses rather than coming. The thing, it's a sad result of what people are not coming to church and not receiving Holy Communion, which we've talked about before is essential. Goes on to say, the right. U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops launched the Eucharistic Revival last year because of this the revival encourages the formation of small groups, parish level, where people can learn about the Eucharist. And uh, the quote here, we don't just want to get people back to Mass. We also want to stop future disaffiliation. That's from Bishop Andrew Cousins uh, from Crookston, Minnesota, chairman of the committee and overseeing right. the revival. It's our experience when people come there and stand a teaching on communion that they want to be there every Sunday. That's why it's so essential for people to understand. It's not the same, and this isn't to denigrate anything, as necessarily a Protestant uh, kind of service where basically you got preaching and singing, and it's probably better if you're there, mm -hmm. but uh, you're not missing quite the same thing of the real presence oh, yeah. at, in a Catholic church. Absolutely. I mean, the Eucharist is the reason for being there in person. The Eucharist is real grace. The Eucharist does truly Jesus' presence in us, protects us from evil. It forgives our venial sins. It certainly it transforms our hearts when we receive the Eucharist as, as many times as we can. Even during the week, it's, it becomes a very transformative experience. In the end, of course, it's leading us continuously to the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus' ultimate gift to us, his real presence, to lead us into the kingdom of heaven. The thought of kind of leaving that behind and just watching television and thinking it's the same thing, well, it's not the same thing. I mean, if you don't receive the Eucharist, you that much more leave yourself open uh, to the evil spirit. You that much more do not receive the healing and transformative presence of Jesus within you. You that much more do not have the forgiveness of your venial sins. You that much more are kind of distancing yourself. Even though you're watching the television, you're getting gradually and gradually more distant, less intimate uh, with uh, Christ uh, in your in your uh, soul. And of course, if that if that continues on, mm -hmm. slowly but surely, the indifference, the apathy begins to seep in, and uh, you'll see that eventually, well, I just don't have time to turn it on, or this is interfering with the sports, I'm going to watch this football game, et cetera, et cetera, and it just becomes no more important than a football game, and then in a few years, less important than the football game, and that's the end of that. Right. Presence is everything. Uh, that Also, you know, we're talking about the Eucharist, but let's face it, when we're with other people, and we're reinforcing uh, one another in our faith. And that's what's happening. You don't have to turn to somebody and make an explicit comment or a helpful comment or something like that, right? I mean, all you need to do is basically, um, you know, be there with, you know, being with uh, another human being automatically uh, reinforces you. I remember one time I was, I came into, uh, uh, you know, the uh, television room uh, when I was in the novitiate mm -hmm. and, uh, I watched the end of the Notre Dame-USC game uh, with Father Mullen, who was about 95 years old, wonderful man, and I got up to leave and he went, thank you, brother. Watching the game with you made all the difference. <laughs> and therein lies, you know, that idea that just companionship 
in Christ, not just in the football game, but companionship in Christ, companionship in belief, companionship in worship. All of these things are so beneficial. Watching with somebody, worshiping with somebody, singing with somebody, being present to the Eucharist with somebody makes all the difference. It's reinforcing, it, you know, it's mm -hmm. edifying, and we're participating in reinforcing the faith of others. So the whole idea of, of course, we want to worship together, the idea of individuated worship services, I mean, it's, we're, we're there to help each other. We're there to support each other. Even just being with each other is, you know, a thousand times more helpful than just being alone inside our solitary heads. So my thought would be, oh, yeah, we've got to get back to church. Yeah. Encourage others that we know who are flipping on the TV to go back to church, yeah. unless, of course, uh, you know, there's a real physical right, disability exactly. or, uh, you You're know. You're dealing a, with a the homebound or something or something yeah. that's in a nursing sure. home. And then you could uh, maybe avail yourself yeah. of, of having communion brought to you. Absolutely, right. and that can right. be arranged. There are Eucharistic ministers now uh, that do go out to the various nursing uh, facilities and, um, you know, upon arrangement. So you can right. actually make uh, arrangements to have um, the Eucharist brought to you. Right, absolutely. Uh, another story that popped up uh, right around Easter was when the Catholic Archdiocese uh, uh, military services accused the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center of denying Catholic service members and veterans their right to practice their religion after it canceled the contract for pastoral care and issued a cease and desist order uh, to the Franciscan priests who were servicing them. Um, it, it says that they signed a new contract with this uh, secular group and they seem to not understand <laughs> that there are certain things that only priests can do for uh, Catholic yeah. con congregants, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they say here, <laughs> yeah. certain central Catholic practices such as celebration of mass, administration can only be carried out by an ordained Catholic uh, priest. And there seemed to be a, a little bit of a, a misunderstanding there in the secular world. Uh, but they did come back and yeah. say that currently a review of the pastoral care contract they signed is under review to ensure it adequately supports the religious needs of our patients and beneficiaries. Although at this time the Franciscan Diocese will not be hosting services on Sunday parishioners of the diocese, patients at our facilities uh, still seek their services. So, uh, you know, again, uh, somebody decided to make a, a new deal, maybe a cut rate price, uh, but seemed to miss yeah, out on right. the, the, some of the aspects of the, yeah. the Catholic faith that are a little different than some of the others that maybe are well, lights under out. that yeah. chaplain. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah. it's important for well, us to realize that there's a the, the 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 amount of secularization out there and lack of understanding, especially oh, yeah. of the Catholic belief system, Absolute. is is amazing. So. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, it's uh, non-familiarity with it, and of course, so much of the media today, both the the uh, traditional and social media, uh, are just so non-religious, mm -hmm. or oftentimes anti-religious, that um, people just don't even know what religion means, you know, mm -hmm. on any kind of level of worship or services, or certainly the mass itself, right. or um, you know, the sacraments like confession. I mean, right. I mean, even just 20 years ago. 
people were much more informed. Even non-Catholics right. knew what Catholics did. Today, I mean, Catholics don't know sometimes what Catholics Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Well, that's another so, story. So, I mean, we've got a real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, there was a great uh, uh, video from a couple of years ago, and it was a reporter in England, and it was two anchor people, a, a woman and, mm -hmm. and a man, and they had just done a field report. It was Ash Wednesday, and the reporter had ashes yeah. on, on their forehead. And the young woman there said, yeah. uh, I, I, I noticed the smudge on his forehead. Did he know he had a smudge on his forehead? And the embarrassed anchor <laughs> next to her said, well, it's, it's Ash Wednesday. And she was like, no, yeah. huh? You know what I mean? So I give What's you an that? idea. Uh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. Kind of what happened yeah. there? Speaking of people yeah. who don't pay attention or dissent, uh, here's an article from yeah. the Register. Dissenting women religious launch another media stunt. I think this was Ann Carey who wrote that wonderful book uh, uh, about sisters in crisis. It uh, basically points out that a small minority yeah. of nation's religious sisters have publicly contradicted the church's transgender doctrine. You know that the bishops came out with that yeah. statement. A uh, very loving statement, yeah. but indicating the teachings of the church. Yeah. She says, here we go again. 28 right. women religious who claim to represent thousands of sisters, don't they always, have issued a declaration at odds yeah. with Catholic teaching and a national media depicting it as another situation where savvy nuns are correcting those rigid bishops. Goes on to say, the timing of the document appears to be the response to the bishop's statement on March 20th, having to do with the moral limits to technological manipulation of the human body. And they have all these yeah. headlines listed here, and it says, if these headlines sound familiar, it's because since the 1960s, and I think we would remember those, activist sisters have vocally contradicted yeah. or challenged church authority with few repercussions, but some success. In 2010, for example, a group of fewer than 100 sisters, you know, came out against, uh, oh, they yeah. were promoting the idea that we should be in favor of Obamacare because it definitely would not include abortion, which, of course, it did. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Sorry. Of course, it ended, ended up just a few uh, facts wrong. Yeah, we got wrong. <laughs> but this is the important point, and I think it's important for Catholics who watch EWTN or even are less informed that additionally, only 25, okay, out of the more than 400 orders or U.S. religious are among the endorsers of this letter. That's 6% of the orders yeah. of women. And it doesn't even include the fact that it's the women in that order just happens to be some of the people running yeah. the order. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's put out there yeah. as if uh, there's this big groundswell uh, of support. Yeah. Um, and, and the yeah. bishops had said, only by using morally appropriate means do health care providers show respect for the dignity of a human person. And, and, uh, and in the article elsewhere, I think there's a great line here. It says, I'm not sure if one of the bishops said, it said, the church calls us to accompany others, but that doesn't mean the church has to change to do so. And that seems to be a misapprehension yeah. a lot of people have, right? Yeah, no, I agree with all of it. And, of course, um, you know, needless to say, we've got the same problem of, you know, there's a lot of things about sexual reassignment surgery uh, that are really, really awful for not only spiritual health but emotional health. And let's face facts. I mean, if you are literally dealing with um, a 20 times increase in suicide rates, why would any group of sisters be encouraging that if you have a 20 times increase from 1.6% 
to 32 percent, you know, of that population uh, is um, going to commit suicide 10 years after the surgery, why would you be promoting this? If you know that the morbidity rates for all causes are going to go up by a factor of three times just for receiving gender-affirming therapy. We're not talking about sexual reassignment right. just gender-affirming therapy. You can see a, a three times increase in morbidity. Why would you be encouraging this? If Sweden and England are reversing their policy on this, why are these sisters, uh, uh, you know, encouraging uh, that we go ahead mm -hmm. and do this and keep going on the same suicidal crazy morbidity mm -hmm. level um, increased you know policy that um, you know has really wrecked the lives right. not just of those who want to detransition but those who actually took their lives why why would we do this and I mean this is again just a few facts right. that were overlooked uh, the same thing that we saw right. 10 years ago but anyway enough said. A absolutely and the thing is if you look at the orders that are involved usually uh, without knowing it specifically, yeah. I guarantee you they are on the lower end of the spectrum of people who are getting locations. You can almost guarantee oh, yeah? that. Yeah. You can almost Absolutely. guarantee that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> One because last... the opposite is also the case. Right. The ones that are getting all the vocations are definitely in the church's magisterial fold. Absolutely. So, anyway. Right. Otherwise, why would you bother joining? Yep. Uh, this one article, yeah. just before we go to the to some of the letters to us, I thought this was uh, uh, at least a positive thing for us. Sunday morning came. This is uh, was uh, put out by our friends uh, online, Rob Royal and his team, um, and it oh, yeah. was uh, a, a copy of a, of something that, uh, Fulton Sheen had written. Uh, he said, at least a dozen oh, yeah. times in history, the world has buried the church, and each time she has come back to life again. He said, this is Fulton Sheen, unless mm -hmm. there is a good Friday in her life, there will never be an Easter Sunday. Unless there is a crown of thorns, there never will be a halo of light. And unless there is a cross, there will never be an empty tomb. In other words, every now mm -hmm. and then the church must be crucified by an unbelieving world buried as dead only to rise again. Every now and then the very life seems to have gone out of her. She is palled with death. Her blood seems to have been sapped out of her. Her enemies seal the tomb, roll a stone in front of her grave, and say the church will never rise again. But somehow or other, she does rise again. Just something on a more positive note. Oh, yeah, no, it's very true. And, I mean, you can just tell. I mean, uh, during the throes of the uh, Protestant Reformation, certainly and there were many dark times, you know, in the uh, 10th century, et cetera, mm -hmm. all during the time of all the heresies and uh, the 4th and 5th centuries with the Christological heresies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, there were times when, you know, Islamic invaders were literally, uh, you know, about to wipe out, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, the church, and at least in the eastern uh, sectors of uh, of, uh, of the empire, et cetera, et cetera. You look at it, and yeah, the church has survived a lot worse times than now. I mean, we've got our own brand of worst time, to make no mistake about it. Uh, it's and it resembles other very bad times, especially with respect to the moral decadence and the lack of attendance at church service, et cetera, et cetera. Those things remain the same. 
but you know it's a different kind of secularization than we've seen before mm -hmm. certainly the social media aspect has has really added uh, to um, you know the rates the acceleration at which a lot of decadence and things can occur um, but uh, basically the church has survived some really tough times and some of them pretty much much tougher than what we're going through right now um, although the secularization levels today are uh, very very high yeah. and our youth are very very susceptible uh, but I think they're um, you know the Holy Spirit's got his plan mm -hmm. and I think we just have to keep doing what we're doing as well as being creative in our evangelization prospects as so many people are just stepping up with so many things you know I I go to this um, you know Napa Institute mm -hmm. and I just look at the number of creative apostolates right. that keep coming there of course EW TN is part of it, Majus is certainly part of it, but I mean there's just gazillions of them from you know what Focus is doing and college campuses, etc. I mean it's just amazing right. to hear this panoply of people that are rising, uh, you know, both religiously oriented, uh, you know, clerically oriented groups as well as lay oriented groups and lots of lay oriented groups right. that are just rising to the evangelization challenge. It's really amazing right. and so like I said the Holy Spirit you're not gonna out with the Holy Spirit if the intention of God is to keep the church going then believe me it's gonna go and no secular influence no evil spirit Satan himself will not bring an end to the church until the end of the world happens at which point Satan himself is doomed right. so um, you know, as they say, things may look bad, they may look gloomy, but at the same time, just be sure of this, Christ will be ultimately victorious, that we know, and the Holy Spirit is much, much craftier than any Satan could possibly be, and he is doing opening doors in ways can't possibly be anticipated and then five years down the line they all catalyze and all of a sudden Satan gets checkmated again right. so my thought is let's uh, trust in the Holy Spirit and Christ he is going to be ultimately victorious so I don't get you know I look at the newspaper I do mm. and I sometimes go now what you know and then I think oh stop you know, Christ is going to be right. victorious. Uh, Jesus Christ is risen today. Uh, don't get too worried uh, right now. Um, the, right. We're, we're in very good hands with Jesus Christ. Right, exactly. And in some ways, I think with uh, the clay feet of so many institutions, so to speak, uh, over the years that we yeah. might have put our trust into, it kind of reinforces the idea that there, there is no one yeah. to really trust except Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, and that I, I remember this very secular historian uh, Arnold Toynbee, um, sure. you know, uh, mm -hmm. who became actually, uh, yeah. Have you heard, yeah read that yeah, quote? Right. You know, yeah. he's a, uh, a converted to Christianity. But what he said about the church is, he says, you know, the Catholic Church, armed with, uh, uh, you know, the shield of the papacy and the helmet of uh, of the um, uh, you know the magisterium, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he goes on to say, is certainly. Uh, not just among, but the toughest uh, of all institutions ever uh, that um, have appeared historically. Uh, tougher than all of the secular institutions, mm -hmm. tougher than uh, any um, uh, institution lasting much longer, which gives us hope 
that it will continue to do so right into the future. Right. Now, this is a guy formerly who was quite secular and, right. and as I said, just kept studying the, Christ, the phenomenon of the Catholic Church and uh, said, well, this is uh, a very inexplicable. Right. It right. seems like more than secular forces indeed right. if you you know remember you know napoleon comes right. into john henry newman right uh, we're gonna destroy the church that is our intention and newman goes oh really says well our clerics have been trying to do that for centuries <laughs> right, right. and have failed to do so <laughs> right absolutely Right. Sorry. And next oh, week I'll have a quote for uh, Napoleon about something else that uh, I'll bring up from him. Yeah. But let's yeah. get on to our, our questions here. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, you know, with all the controversy that surrounds the sh study of the Shroud of Turin, you're familiar with that. I think you might have heard about it a couple of times. Uh, yeah. that concluded it was not the that concluded it was not the actual burial cloth of Jesus. Why do you think the church has not authorized further tests? Wouldn't showing the shroud was from the time of Christ help increase the faith of skeptics, Claire? And I think Claire might have missed some of your uh, discussions about the latest status yeah. on the proof of the shroud. Why don't you recount that? Yeah, well, uh, go ahead, um, Claire. I, I understand what you think, but you know, when you uh, look up stuff uh, randomly on on uh, Google, there on uh, the internet. Uh, you have to be very, very careful about who the source is. If it's people like Garlicelli, right, uh, who um, have made it a business for years uh, to do, quote unquote, so-called blood spattering scientific tests, mm -hmm. and they're, where they're throwing blood onto a mannequin with a sponge on a stick. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is hardly a scientific test. You're going to compare this to the work of a guy named Frederick Zugaby, right, at Columbia University, sure who did huge numbers of significant tests. Yeah, exactly, and a variety of really well-known pathologists who have put together this huge profile on the shrouds, bloodstains, et cetera, et cetera, and you're going to say, oh, uh, you know, this person who, by the way, is not a medical doctor, he's, he's an anthropologist or something who's decided he doesn't like the shroud mm -hmm. because it really gives the impression that Jesus is not only historical but also his crucifixion and resurrection, mm -hmm. which I believe is certainly the case. I think there is abundant evidence, good studies, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Claire, if you want, I can send you um, you know, some uh, excellent, uh, just a summary um, uh, group of, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, sources and a whole line of things that have to do, first of all, with the blood stains, um, second of all, um, with the, uh, the resurrection. But I think the one thing you're probably more concerned about is the carbon dating that happened in 1988. And that has been thoroughly debunked, Claire. Uh, first of all, Dr. Ray Rogers showed that in the area where the sample was taken from, there is definitely cotton fibers mixed in there. Those cotton fibers have been de uh, dyed with a gum dye mordant that was available only in the Middle Ages to make the threads that the nuns had used to patch the shroud after the fire of Chambéry looked the same color as the linen cloth. But, I mean, by, um, you know, pyrolysis, um, uh, spectro um, uh, mass spectrometry, and a variety of other tests, um, uh, Roger shows definitively, this, these fiber contents with their cotton and their dye, et cetera, that come from a later period do not resemble 
the linen cloth. The shroud is made of linen, not cotton. That was the first thing. Then we had um, uh, the um, uh, uh, work of uh, uh, Tristan Casabianca and his colleagues that published for a very fine uh, um, uh, journal, uh, Archaeometry from Oxford. And uh, in that journal, they showed definitively after, by the way, trying multiple times uh, to get uh, the release of the raw data from uh, the British Museum. The British Museum finally released it to them on a freedom of information request. They did a statistical analysis of the raw data for the uh, C14 data, uh, for a C14 dating mm -hmm. test, and found what? Uh, so much heterogeneity, so much stratification uh, in the, um, uh, the raw data of those uh, samples, the sample that was used, it is impossible to date the shroud, mm -hmm. um, you know, to um, the uh, Middle Ages, let alone any age. I mean, it just simply was an invalid test. How that was protected between 1988, by the way, this only happened in 2018. 30 years had passed before finally uh, the raw data was made available so that the, the carbon dating could be done. Then you start looking at other things, like, for example, uh, um, there was a, a group of um, uh, uh, physicists over in Italy uh, at the National Labs there. Uh, Dr. Uh, Liberato Di Caro and his colleagues uh, actually did in uh, all this uh, last year, 2022, mm -hmm. um, peer-reviewed over two years a new wide-angle scattering uh, X-ray scattering test. Now that wide-angle X-ray scattering test was peer-reviewed to be exceedingly accurate for the mm -hmm. dating of ancient uh, linens, particularly those with similar spectrum reflectance to the Shroud of Turin. So you start looking at this and you start thinking to yourself, well, what was the age that was ultimately determined? Between 55 to 74 AD, repeat, 55 to 74 AD. But part of the, uh, the X-ray scattering, a wide-angle X-ray scattering, mm -hmm. is to show what the ambient temperature, uh, secular temperature, would be like uh, in the, um, uh, in, um, if the shroud had been younger or older. If the shroud was only 700 years old, as the carbon-14 dating makes it out to be, then the ambient temperature, according to wide-angle X-ray scattering, several tests of this, right, the, then the ambient secular temperature that the shroud would have had to have been in for all 700 of those years is higher than the highest temperatures ever recorded on the earth. Day and night, it would have to be in those exceedingly hot temperatures in order to get a reading of 700 years from the Shroud of Turin. So this is ridiculous. I mean, the whole carbon-14 has been thoroughly debunked, and by the by, there are pollen um, uh, grains that are um, uh, manifest in the shroud. The largest number, almost uh, three quarters of the pollen grains in the shroud, are from what area? Jerusalem and northern Judea. And many of them, 14 are indigenous to that area, and four are absolutely unique to that area, never found beyond wow. northern Judea. Now, never you look at that, that and you say, well, what does that mean? It means that the shroud had to have been in the open air in Jerusalem and northern Judea for multiple centuries. Right. So if now it's there for multiple centuries. How is it that we have a provenance established for the shroud of 700 years, right, because 1350, right, Geoffrey right, um, uh, uh, Charney announces that he what has it, the shroud, shows it, also, it up. What it, uh, right, what it also means is we have to take a break. 
uh, and that way you can take a breath. <laughs> and we'll be uh, back with much more, and Father Spitzer has continued explaining about the shroud. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. We appreciate you staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, the Holy Eucharist, ultimately. But right now, part two of the Shroud explanation. Continue, Father. <laughs> right. Sorry about that. So I was just saying, you know, with relative to that carbon dating, um, you know, if the Shroud is only 700 years old, then we know that the Shroud would have had to have been in France and Italy only because we have an established provenance from uh, Geoffrey de Charnay, Right in 1350, he makes the big announcement. It's witnessed by, you know, dozens of people that he's got the shroud. People see the shroud. The shroud gets exchanged, goes to Turin. So there only should be pollen grains in the shroud from Liri, France, a few other places in northern France, and from Turin, Italy. That's it. <clears throat> but instead, there, the, that's the minimum number of pollen grains is from uh, Turin and from Leary, France. The majority of the mm -hmm. pollen grains, by far three quarters, are from Jerusalem and northern Judea. It would have to be several centuries in Jerusalem and northern mm -hmm. Judea. Plus, we have um, indigenous pollen grains from Edessa, Turkey, so it'd have to be um, not just indigenous, but uh, two unique ones from Edessa, Turkey. So it had to be there for one or two centuries minimum in Edessa, Turkey. And then we have indigenous and unique pollen grains from Constantinople, uh, Turkey, where we know the shroud was seen at St. Mary uh, de Blacherney by uh, Robert de Clary, um, uh, you know, right before the, uh, uh, the Twelfth uh, Crusade, where it seems like Autan de la Roche, uh, a knight there, may have taken in it, uh, who was a fifth generation um, um, a relative of, uh, of um, uh, or ancestor of um, Jeanne de Vergie, who is the, the wife of Geoffrey de Charnay. Mm -hmm. So the point, though, that I'm making is, hey, how could the shroud have been for centuries in Jerusalem and northern Judea and in Edessa, Turkey, and in Constantinople, Turkey, for centuries more, and still have been in Turin, Italy, and um, uh, in uh, Liri, France for 700 years. Mm -hmm. I don't think the shroud is 700 years old. It looks like, as usual, that it's uh, been uh, uh, around for much, much longer, probably right back to the time right. of Christ, uh, looking at that dating. And then, of course, there's a face cloth of Oviedo, mm -hmm. uh, which is clearly an indication uh, that the shroud has to be older. It has to go back to 616 A.D. or before. And why is that? Because the face cloth, remember in John's Gospel mm -hmm. where Peter and John peer into the tomb and see the face cloth rolled up in a place by itself, and then the burial cloth, that's the shroud, mm -hmm. in another place. So they look there, and what's that, that face cloth? That face cloth was used to take the body from the um, cross down to the tomb. Mm -hmm. Why did they use it? Because their beloved one, Jesus, was looked 
terror it was a macabre sight mm -hmm. i mean he was beaten to a pulp he had swelling all over his face blood stains everywhere pleural edema fluid coming out of his nose and and uh, possibly his mouth and in addition to that he's you know his jaws you know practically broken etc mm -hmm. so what do they do they 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 take the cloth they put it around the head over the top of the head and then underneath the jaw to hold it up right. and then they transport it so that the the face of their beloved one can't be seen in this macabre condition then when they get to the tomb they take it off roll it up in the place by itself as john says and then they put him in the shroud now notice that there is no image on the face cloth of oviedo there's just blood stains. Hmm. And here's the weird part. If you do a digital overlay analysis of the blood stains on the face cloth of Oviedo, and you compare those blood stains with the face of the man on the Shroud of Turin, there is 120 points of congruence, hmm. 50, uh, 70 on the front and 50 on the back. And that includes on the top of the head where all the thorns have penetrated, mm -hmm. right? And the thorns were so long that when the head flopped back, the thorns were actually penetrating into the nape of the neck. Oh, so 120 irregular blood stains. And you're going to say that, that there's a, and there's 120 points of congruence between the blood stains on the face cloth and the blood stains on the shroud. You're going to tell me this happened by accident? Impossible. Astronomically high odds against that. So what's the... Uh, the uh, uh, only conclusion that we can reasonably come to, that those two cloths had to touch the same crucified face. By the way, crucified in the unique way of Jesus. Now, if you look at that and take that very seriously, you will also notice that, wait a minute, the face cloth of Oviedo has an established provenance going back to 616 A.D. That's where bishops started recording, right, that this in, uh, in Odessa, Turkey, the, the cloth has come uh, uh, to them, the face cloth has come to them, and of course it records, uh, you know, that it, it goes over to Greece and then finally uh, over to Oviedo, Spain. And in 700, uh, Isidore of Seville's putting the face cloth of Oviedo uh, into a little, uh, you know, uh, metal casket right um uh in the face uh, in the cathedral of oviedo and that's where it stays to this very day mm -hmm. so we have an established provenance for the face cloth of oviedo back to 616 a.d well if those two cloths touch the same crucified face to get those liquid blood stains onto the shroud with 120 mm -hmm. points of congruence i assure you the shroud of turin has to have uh, been at, at, around six uh, in 616 A.D. and it must have had the blood stains on it in 616 A.D. and very very probably according to the pollen grain evidence before that in Jerusalem in northern mm -hmm. Judea and very very probably according to the wide angle scattering uh, uh, X-ray scattering test mm -hmm. it would have gone back to 55 to 74 A.D. Are you kidding me? That carbon dating is a gonzo. Let me ask you it's one been completely debunked and nobody really right. believes it in the scientific community right. except for a few atheist holdouts yeah on the internet Sorry. uh let me ask you 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 alluded to the fact that it that 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 the the oviedo cloth the head cloth let's say right mm -hmm. uh has yeah, blood uh, but doesn't cloth. have an image why does it not have the image like the image we see on the shroud 
and this is a really uh, important because the image was produced by the resurrection. And um, I'll talk about uh, resurrection radiation in just a second if you want me to uh, go into it, but it's very fascinating. But, of course, when they brought the, the, uh, the uh, body to the tomb, they always removed the face cloth, mm -hmm. right, so that the face, of course, I could okay. um, also... Uh, but remember, they didn't anoint the body or the face very much. They just did something superficial because the um, uh, Passover was... Uh, uh, literally minutes away mm -hmm. and so they were trying to get the body into the shroud and then get the tomb sealed before the Passover started wow. so uh, essentially then um, there was pressure on them uh, to get it done so the um, uh, uh, you know it's perfect for the the resurrection now wow. uh, how did the resurrection produce the image this is the really shorthand version It'd take me a half of a program to describe this adequately. But there are two basic, right, it has to be radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no other way of explaining this um, for many, many reasons. Um, uh, one of them is, you know, it can't be liquids, it can't be dyes, mm -hmm. it can't be rubs, uh, anything like that. Because um, the image is actually resting on the uppermost surface of the fibrils of the cloth. So it never penetrates into the middle of the fibers, and it, the image doesn't. And the image doesn't penetrate into the middle of the cloth. It's absolutely on the uppermost surface of the fibrils. Now, you, if you look at that, the only way that that can happen, right, if you put a liquid there, right, like blood, mm -hmm. it'll immediately seep into the middle of the fibers and into the middle of the cloth. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you put a dye there or vapors coming up from the body, so let's suppose they put some aloes on the body and the body was still hot and the um, vapors came up from the body, immediately it would go into the middle of the fibers and into the middle of the cloth and it would spangle, right? It would not just the liquids and the vapors would go into the adjacent fibers. So you can see pretty clearly that um, that the uh, uh, the shroud. Um, I mean the, the absolutely precise image on the shroud. By the way, it's a really perfect, right. precise, three-dimensional photographic negative image. By the way, there's imprinting. Um, also, the uh, second thing that, that shows it must be radiation that produces the image is the fact that not all parts of the shroud, uh, I mean, uh, touch the body, right? So there are many parts of the shroud that didn't. It touches the parts of the body that are extended high enough, but then the, uh, where there's depressions, there should be no image if, it, if um, it's see. produced right. by a liquid or a dye or scorching. But in this particular case, you have like a photographic negative image. So even in the orbits of the eyes and so forth and so on, where the shroud is not touching the body, mm -hmm. you have um, uh, images. Image. Image. But here's the weirdest thing about the shroud. The weirdest thing is like the backbone, right? Inside the body, you have very clear imaging of the backbone on the inside of the body and in three-dimensional proportionality to the flesh surrounding the backbone. And like on the hands, right, you have the same thing. You have the, the, the hands, uh, um, uh, the bones inside the hand in uh, three-dimensional proportionality to the flesh surrounding the bones, et cetera. Mm. So there's information from the inside of the body. That means that the cloth had to penetrate into the body at least three sixteenths of an inch into the body 
in order to get that imaging from the inside, or there has to be some other explanation of how the cloth could have gotten the inside information uh, relative to the surface of the body. So you look at that and you go, well, how is that possible? And by the way, the sheets would have had to have uh, remained absolutely flat. Well, here's the explanation in a nutshell. I mean, basically, um, there's two explanations. One of them is called the ultraviolet um, radiation hypothesis. Uh, this would be vacuum columnated ultraviolet radiation in the intensity of six to eight billion, B, billion watts, like a half a million searchlights worth of, of light energy are coming out of this body um, uh, for a one forty billionth of a second. Uh, let me tell you something. Dead bodies do not do this. Mm -hmm. This is very extraordinary. We're talking about an order of miracle that is way beyond any physical explanation. But that would have done it. There is one other explanation called the particle radiation hypothesis. This is one that has been uh, pr proposed by Dr. Kitty Little at uh, Harwell um, Labs in Great Britain, uh, uh, Dr. Jean-Baptiste Renaud in um, uh, the Institut Nucléaire in, in France, and also uh, Dr. Arthur Lind and many others. Mm -hmm. Okay, this particular uh, um, uh, uh, analysis, if I could just put right. it this way, has it, it proposes that every single you know, stable atomic nucleus in the, that body. Let me repeat what that is. At seven octillion stable atomic nuclei. Seven octillion. That's a lot. That's like a billion, trillion, trillion, uh, you know, stable atomic nuclei. All those, those uh, uh, nuclei in that body suddenly, simultaneously undergo nuclear disintegration. Uh, the odds of this happening by natural causation are just about zero. I mean, it's just, this is a miracle of the highest order. We're looking right at a miracle if that's the explanation. But it seems to be the best explanation because it explains all 45 enigmas on the cloth. And so if you really look at this, you know, here we are in the resurrection season. If you look at this, I'm telling you, if all these particles are coming off, it's going to create two kinds of particle showers or fluxes, right? It'll create one of, that has heavy charged particles and another one that has particles that are either not charged or not heavy. So, for example, the heavy charged particles would be protons, deuterons, alpha particles, right? Now, why are these particles important? When that shower of particles is coming off of the nuclear disintegration, by the way, it's, it's what's called a low temperature nuclear reaction. It will give rise to a very bright light and a boom. Wow. But the point is the shower, the shower of particles is coming up. And what it does, they're charged particles, right? So they interact with the charged particles in the cloth. So they stop where? At the very uppermost okay. surface of the fibrils. They stop. And when they stop, and because they're interacting with those particles in the cloth, they are creating friability uh, in the cloth. They're a crispiness uh, in the cloth, a very precise kind of crispiness, according to the exact distance of the image-creating thing, like the backbone or the surface of the body, to the actual cloth.
So you can see why you've got three-dimensional proportionality here, both of the inside of the body and the outside of the body. And it's, of course, right on the uppermost surface of the fibrils. It would be a perfectly precise image. And so you can see uh, right there that right. this would produce okay. the image that okay. we see. Uh, the other group of particles that's coming off are neutrons, for example, which are heavy but not charged, or electrons, which are charged but not heavy, and then things like gamma rays. Mm. So those are another set of particles. What do they do? Well, those neutrons, they don't stop at the surface of the part. They're not charged. So what do they do? They actually pass right through the linen cloth. When they pass through the linen cloth, they, for example, irradiate the blood. Um, and so they're passing through the blood too. And we've always wondered, well, how come that blood on the shroud is so bright red? Mm -hmm. Because blood, you know, soon after death, right, or being put on a cloth turns brown and then eventually mm -hmm. to black. But not the shroud. The shroud's um, blood images are bright red. And by the mm. way, make no mistake about it, it is blood. It has AB blood type. Uh, there's 372 blood stains in that shroud. With AB blood type, human hemoglobin, he human immunoglobulins, human whole blood, right? This has been verified in all 372 of those blood stains. Now, the main thing to recognize is that you irradiate those blood stains. And by the way, Dr. Arthur Lynn did this, and several other people have shown, uh, I think it was Dr. Arthur Lynn, it may, it may have been uh, uh, an Italian group as well. But anyway, the long and short of it is you irradiate those blood stains with neutrons, and guess what they do? They turn bright, right, the min uh, <laughs> bright red. red the minute you put that out into ultraviolet light. So you put the shroud on exhibition, and the sunshine is there in the room, that ultraviolet light from the sun turns every blood stain on the shroud into a bright red mm. and of course it doesn't have anything to do with bilirubin content at all uh, because the bilirubin content varies whereas all the blood stains on the shroud are quite bright red it explains a lot like for example the shroud is exceedingly strong exceedingly resistant to solvents exceedingly resistant to uh, age and so forth and people wonder for a long time how is this possible uh, for a linen shroud well if you pass a bunch of neutrons through uh, a linen shroud it's going to break all of the weak carbonyl structures uh, from the cellulose that are linear carbonyl structures break them all apart and they recombine into crystalline um, uh, carbonyl structures, which are much more resilient to age and, and much stronger and, of course, um, uh, much more resistant to solvents, et cetera, and touching, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, another explanation. But here's the really interesting thing. Now, just think of this body. You know, we could never explain, um, you know, with the ultraviolet radiation hypothesis, how the information from the inside of the body got onto the cloth in perfect three-dimensional proportionality to the surface of the body. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know how it occurred. And now we do, because with the um, particle radiation hypothesis, notice then that the particles are breaking up right on the um, surface of the uh, body at the same time that they're breaking up uh, on the inside of the body. But it just takes a split second longer for the particle to move from the backbone inside the body to the cloth than it does uh, to move from the surface of the, the flesh on the back to the cloth. So that split second later, right, already 
the, the, um, the surface of the body is breaking up. So the particles that are coming from the backbone can protrude right through. They're a little bit behind the, the, the particles that are breaking up at the surface and they hit uh, the, the, the shroud. Just two quick things. Uh, and this explains a whole lot of stuff, right? So you get the full inside of the body in perfect three-dimensional proportionality. We always wondered too, uh, you'd have to have, the cloths would have to be absolutely flat and they would have to be, uh, and we noticed that the image on the dorsal side is the same intensity as the image on the frontal side. And we're all scratching our head, well, why would that be so? Because if the body's in a supine position and the weight of the body is on the dorsal side, that would press the uh, body closer to the cloth, the image should be darker. But in point of fact, it's not. Why so? Because in every low temperature nuclear reaction, what do you get? A vacuum. And the vacuum is sucking the two sides of the cloth, the frontal and dorsal parts of cloth, toward the center of the body at the exact same intensity. And by the way, it would maintain the flatness of the cloth in the sucking. And so the idea then um, would be we've got an explanation for all 45 enigmas on that wow. cloth with the particle radiation hypothesis. And so, um, well, what do, can we make out of it? Well, what we make out of it is this, that this miracle happened, that seven octillion part, um, uh, stable atomic nuclei in this body suddenly begin the process of nuclear disintegration at the very same moment simultaneously and when this happens it gives rise to a flash of light, bright light and then to a boom and then of course a low temperature nuclear reaction which does not destroy the cloth mm. because right it only gets up to about 177 degrees uh, Fahrenheit in there because it's a very low temperature nuclear reaction disintegration mm -hmm. so the point then is is that the, the cloth sucks uh, down and of course it right. produces, literally as the body is disintegrating, um, it, it's it producing this perfect image of itself on the cloth and it's from the inside of the body and the outside of the body. And I just look at it as it's right. Jesus's physical body making that change into his transphysical right. spiritual body. And we've got a photograph of that exact moment, a miraculous moment. I mean, it'll be irre irreproducible again. I mean, this is like a totally right. unique uh, event, uh, astronomically high odds against something Absolutely. like this happening. Uh, and, and, and it just, you know, it, so, it was like God prepared it, so gazillion, was, you know, 2,000 years ago. Right. So was there yeah. any radioactivity? I mean, was there any radiation, I mean, that was left behind? Yeah, yes, but it'd be a low degree of yeah, there would be radiation, but it'd be a low degree of radiation. It would not be a high degree of radiation, right. but you ask an incredibly important question because in any nuclear reaction, you're going to get what's called cosmogenic isotopes. And like, uh, for example, calcium-41 or chlorine-36, right? These are very highly unusual isotopes. You only get them around nuclear reactions. So in the next shroud exposition, right when uh, the shroud is done you know what all the physicists are going to be doing they're going to be looking for cosmogenic isotopes uh you know in i mean the, the cosmogenic right. isotopes are so rare well, I um, think, you know they, they right. certainly are not to, in abundance on a clock we're, right we're gonna have to lay know, that search up. until next week uh if you don't mind uh, yeah <laughs> <those isotopes. laughs> okay
because we need you to give us <laughs> uh, your blessing on the way out the door. Okay, that'd be great. Oh, very good. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And dear Lord, you have given us this relic of yourself as you moved into that spiritual state, the relic of yourself, which is the promise of the resurrection, the relic of yourself, which is pure miracle that gives rise to the light and the love and the glory of the resurrection that is to come for us all through, of course, your resurrection. We ask you to give us that faith and that hope and that resurrection so that as we follow that promise, we may uh, know that our life is for you, our eternity for you, in order to be brought into the love that you have given us through your cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We appreciate the insights. We'll see you next week. And of course, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs available through our catalog. We're sorry we didn't get to the topic. We'll get to it next week, dealing with the Holy Eucharist, but that was so informative, we wanted to keep going. Uh, bookmark Everyday Miracles through Our Lady of Lords, uh, and that's with Marlene Watkins. It's a book interview I did, uh, so you can check that out. And also, we've got an event coming up, which is EWTN's coverage, as we do every year, Sunday Divine Mercy Celebration. We'll have special masses from Krakow, Poland, Vilnius, Lithuania. In addition to beginning at noon, Eastern Time will bring you the always popular Mass and Celebration of Divine Mercy from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, followed by the Divine Mercy Holy Hour from the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville with Mother's Sisters. And check out all that great programming available on EWTN.com. You can see for all the times in your area. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time in Father Spitzer's Universe.